0: Greetings all, and welcome back to another bonus episode of the Untold History Podcast. First things first, I want to acknowledge that it has been a long wait between the last episode and this one. A couple of reasons for this. Firstly, I went on holiday and didn't have so much time to do research. And secondly, well, research. It has taken me longer than usual to research some of the concepts of this episode and I wanted to ensure that all information I provide is as accurate as possible. In the first couple of podcasts the information was fresh in my head having read several books on Edward's Accession at the time I was recording, but here I have had to delve back into Henry the Eighth's reign and find information on the topics I wanted to cover. So thank you for your patience. I know there are not a huge number of you clamouring for new content, but for those of you who are still following me, big thanks, and I will endeavour to make the gap between this episode and the next a little smaller. In this episode, we will break from the main narrative again to explore the state of the realm at the time of Henry VIII's death and the accession of Edward VI in order to get a sense of the country that the new king inherited in 1547. In particular, we will take note of the changes that had taken place during the reign of King Henry, for, as we know, he left England in a very different state to how he found it as he came to the throne in 1509. When considering these changes, the obvious starting point is the reformation of the church. The changes here would have been undreamt of at the start of the reign, even by Henry himself who began his life as very much a conformist Catholic, as he had been raised. The religion of England in the reign of Henry Seventh was such that an alliance between England and the staunchly Catholic Spain, through the marriage of Prince Arthur and Catherine of Aragon, made perfect sense. We end the reign of King Henry with battle lines between Catholics and reformers, including on Edward VI's Regency Council, But for much of Henry's reign such divisions did not exist and had no reason to. Protestantism did not begin in England. We can trace the origins of the movement all the way back to the start of the second millennium in the 1100s with the Waldensians of France and Italy. Only a couple of centuries later with John Wycliffe did the seeds of what would become Protestantism arrive on English shores, But the Reformation that would change England started in earnest with the much more famous Martin Luther, who is said to have nailed his 95 theses on the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, on Halloween night 1517. This may be an embellishment, as such a long document may have been impractical to have attached to a door in such a way, but nonetheless it was a cry of rage against what he saw as the abuses of the Catholic Church. And it would have huge historical significance. Luther was a German professor of theology and a bit of a polymath, being also a priest and a composer. He took against several teachings of the Catholic Church and its practices at the time. In particular, he despised the practice of indulgences, where people could pay money to the church to have their sins forgiven, For Luther, salvation should be achievable by faith alone, and on this I can agree, for if it were to exist, one should surely not be able to buy their way out of hell after a life of sin. At the time, the indulgence money was to be used to fund the rebuilding of St Peter's in Rome. Luther died in February 1546, about a year before the King of England that had initially repudiated his ideas and then embraced them for personal reasons as he sought a divorce from his first wife. It is probably fair to say that the reformation of the English Church came about largely due to Henry's desire to break from his marriage and enter into another in the hope of siring a male heir to continue the Tudor line. Henry was not a religious radical and he broke from the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope's authority for dynastic reasons rather than religious ones. He had even been named Defender of the Faith by the Pope in 1521 for his writing of a book denouncing Luther's ideas. On his deathbed, he remained a Catholic, more coveting the power of the Pope rather than the reform of Christian religion in his country. Whatever his true desire, his son's reign would see the rapid acceleration of religious reform along Protestant lines, and it was the reign of Henry VIII that made that possible. In 1534 the Act of Supremacy stated that the king would be accepted and reputed the only supreme head in earth of the Church of England. Any monarch to follow would enjoy this newfound power and Edward was the first to inherit the throne with this title. A key development in religious reform was the translation of the Bible into English. The scholar William Tyndale spent much of the latter part of his life working on this project and was forced to move from England to Cologne, and then Worms in Germany, due to the laws against such a translation. Tyndale wished to create a version of the Bible that the layman could read and understand, yet he faced huge opposition from the Catholic Church. The translated Bible was banned in England, attracting condemnation from key figures such as Thomas More. After a life on the run, pursued by spies of the English king, Tyndale was ultimately betrayed by a friend. He was arrested in Belgium and tried on heresy charges in 1536. His punishment was to be strangled and burnt to death. In his final moments, he is said to have exclaimed, Lord, open the King of England's eyes! His prayers were seemingly answered later in Henry VIII's reign. In a bizarre act of hypocrisy, Within four years of Tyndale's death, the king approved four English translations of the Bible to be published in England, including Henry's Great Bible. All four were based on Tyndale's work. They made the Bible's teachings available to the common man, at least the literate ones, whereas before such people had been reliant on priests to interpret and teach the Latin books contents to them. And so King Edward VI would inherit a realm whose religion and its interpretation was far more accessible to the average person. This would help him and his council push through reforms that went far further than those of his father. The Act of Six Articles was passed in 1539, evidence of Henry's own doctrinal conservatism and him putting on the brakes of religious reform as well as an attempt to placate the Catholic powers of Spain and France to prevent England becoming more politically isolated and open to aggression. France and Spain had gained closer relations at this time, so this was important. I won't go into the entirety of the six articles now, but in short they upheld traditional Catholic doctrine, including transubstantiation and the celibacy of the priesthood. This would, however, be a temporary pause on English religious reform. In the mid-16th century, we see a trend of a religion moving away from the symbolism and mysticism of contemporary Catholicism, and towards a more simplified reformed faith, where the Bible and its teachings were supreme. It is also a truth little mentioned that monasticism was dwindling in advance of their abolition, with the number of inhabitants of large monasteries shrinking greatly in the first half of the 16th century. Religion was in transition, Henry's dynastic woes an accelerant. Economics and the welfare of the people. Now we shall consider the economics of the Tudor era and away from court and the corridors of power, the living conditions of the average person. What was clear was that the population was growing the lack of great civil wars like those that had characterised the 1400s, as well as the absence of great plagues, meant that the English population was on the rise. Greater food security meant that people were more likely to marry and have children, and so the number of English men and women grew from around 2 million at the start of the century to some 2.8 million by the start of Edward's reign. Many historians mark the events of Henry the Ape's reign as the beginnings of the modern era and a move away from a medieval nation. The break with Rome gave England a new independence, and the resultant policies had an effect on the governance of the nation. The dissolution of the monasteries in the latter part of the 1530s took away a vital safety net for some of the poorest, exacerbating existing poverty problems as they had served the function of providing social support for people in need. Following their abolition, it was reported that begging, homelessness and related crime increased significantly. The population growth already discussed meant more people competing for fewer jobs to go round, as the economy did not grow sufficiently to absorb the employment needs of all of these new workers. Growing poverty and vagrancy was a reality recognised by the authorities by the 1530s, and new legislation was thus required. A new Act was passed, increasing the severity of punishment for vagrancy for the first time since 1495, whipping replacing the stocks in a bid to challenge the disorder caused by the crime. Despite the King's support of a surprisingly enlightened Bill of 1535, that aimed to create additional jobs for the swelling population through a programme of works on roads and other infrastructure. The Act did not make it through Parliament, and was watered down hugely. The eventual bill that was passed placed responsibility for the poor relief on local parishes or municipal authorities. Speaking of Parliament, it should be noted that it was growing in power, a somewhat undesired side effect from the monarch's perspective of the break from Rome and England finding its feet as a more independent nation. After the seven years of the Reformation Parliament, King Henry V, which had sat during the break from Rome, enacting the statutes which made it possible, Parliament took on powers previously held by the Church and grew significantly in stature. But when we talk about Tudor Parliament, we are of course not referring to it in its modern sense, as a set of MPs elected by their constituents on a one-person, one-vote basis. The Tudor parliament was made up of men placed there by wealthy landowners, and was called only at the will of the monarch, serving largely to pass reforms as the monarch saw fit, with little real power to oppose his authority. The 1530s, the last complete decade of Henry's reign, were a time where inflation too was beginning to become a problem, the price of wheat had risen considerably, from about 6 shillings for a quarter in 1500 to about 10 shillings in 1540, and would rise still higher. To put this in context, the average labourer could expect to earn about 4 or 5 pence a day in summertime, and there were 12 pence to the shilling. The population growth also led to a reduction in wages in real terms, as supply of labour outweighed demand and so the number of unskilled labourers in poverty grew accordingly. And then we come to the problem of enclosures, something that would become a real thorn in the side of the Lord Protector Somerset, Edward Seymour, the king's uncle, in the reign to come. Enclosure was the act of taking away land and using it for the pasture of sheep as opposed to arable farming, from which many poor earned their living. Many wealthy landowners enclosed their land for the grazing of sheep, as wool had increased in value, and as discussed, the century's population growth had squeezed the availability of land. This practice hurt the poor who had previously worked this land for crops, and would ultimately lead to a major rebellion in the reign of King Edward. Edward certainly inherited a less stable economy than his father had on his accession. Henry the Seventh is well known as a miser, but misers are famously good at saving money meaning the first Tudor king left his son a large amount of money. Henry VIII, meanwhile, had no miserly tendencies whatsoever, burning through his substantial inheritance at an impressive rate in the heady days of his early reign. Later, of course, when the coffers were depleted, vast sums of money would be raised from the dissolution of the monasteries, which were in turn drained by wars with France and Scotland in the latter stages of the second Tudor king's reign, when finances ran dry again and there were no more monasteries to dissolve, Henry's government had to turn to another creative solution to raise money. This came in the form of the debasement of the currency, which meant in practice that the amount of precious metals in the coins were reduced. Henry VIII earned the nickname Old Copper Nose due to the silver often rubbing off the coins, revealing the less valuable copper beneath. This practice of debasement or devaluation of the coinage was a short term solution that would ultimately lead to more long term problems. War and Military Matters At the time of Henry VIII's death, England was at war with Scotland over the matter of King Edward's potential marriage to Mary, Queen of Scots, commonly known as the Rough Wooing. It was not the romance of the matter that drove English aggression but the desire to break the old alliance between Scotland and France against the English. The reign saw the advancement of weapons technology and a move away from the favoured longbows with which the English excelled, and toward gunpowder-based weapons a more powerful artillery that would shape warfare for years to come. Henry VIII significantly increased the strength of the English navy, from just five royal warships at the time of his father's death in 1509 to 40 by the time of his own death in 1547. Dockyards were constructed at Deptford in 1513 and at Woolwich in 1512, along with the first naval dock at Portsmouth. The new warships would be capable of carrying far stronger firepower and more men to utilise them. The administrative capacity of the Navy was also expanded with the creation of the Navy Board, the administrative wing of the English war machine at sea. Such changes strengthened England's hand at sea, and laid the foundations for the establishment of England as a major naval power during the reign of Henry's daughter, and future Queen, Elizabeth I, not to mention the famous victory over the Spanish Armada in the latter stages of her reign. This despite the loss of the famous flagship, the Mary Rose, in combat against the French in 1545. The English King abandoned his final war against the French in 1546, retaining control of Boulogne near Calais on the northern tip of France, which remained an English territory into the reign of Edward VI, when, as part of a peace settlement, the French had the option to buy it back. Edward Seymour had been present at the town's capture in 1544 and helped negotiate the peace treaty. While Anglo-French relations were more peaceful at the time of King Henry's death, England remained at war with Scotland. Seymour would make raids north in an attempt to subdue the nation, before a Scots victory at Anchor Moor subdued the English for a time. Nonetheless, tension remained at the time of Edward's accession, and it would not be long before Seymour and the English armies were marching north once more, in a bid to finally bring the northern neighbour to heel. Crime and Punishment When we think of Henry VIII, the popular image is of a bloated tyrant, more than willing to send his subjects, and famously his wives, to death in pursuit of his ambitions. Often it is possible to defend Henry and place his behaviour within the context of a 16th century monarch. However, one area in which the popular image seems to match the reality is with the treason laws enacted towards the end of the reign. Following the break from Rome, the Treason Act of 1534 made it a treasonable offence, punishable by death, to disavow the act of supremacy, recognizing Henry as supreme head of the Church of England. Importantly, it made even mere verbal criticism of the king treason. Edward VI inherited these harsh treason laws, and he and his ruling council quickly repealed them, stating that they were unnecessary for the more peaceful times of this new reign, compared to his father's. The Line of Succession Before we go, I think I should talk more about the accession as it stood. In 1547, the new King Edward was a fairly robust nine-year-old boy, hoped and expected to live for many years and father male heirs of his own as far as any long life could be expected in Tudor times. However, his father had laid out an act of succession that specified the order of the line to the throne should Edward die childless. In 1534, the act of that time had stated that the crown would pass to the children of Henry and Anne Boleyn, Mary having been cast out as a bastard, this made the one-year-old Elizabeth heir presumptive at the time. The second succession act of the reign came after Anne's fall and execution, and removed Elizabeth as a legitimate heir along with her elder half-sister. With both of his daughters declared illegitimate, Henry had no legitimate offspring to succeed him, and until the birth of Edward the next year, the position was that he was to pick his heir as he saw fit, The third and final Succession Act of 1543, past 1544, laid down the line that would be Henry VIII's last word on the matter, and would be the state of play as Edward came to the throne. We may speculate that the birth of a male heir had softened Henry's attitude towards his two daughters, and eased the negative feelings from the ends of his first two marriages. Though Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn had both died far from favour in the king's eye, he recognised that the two girls born from those marriages were both of his blood, and with the longed-for prince unlikely to inherit the throne anyway. Therefore, with the encouragement of his sixth and final wife, Catherine Parr, they were reinstated into the succession behind Prince Edward, with certain conditions. The most important of these was that neither would marry without the approval of the Privy Council. Any children that Henry might have by Catherine Parr or any other future lawful wife would also supersede Mary and Elizabeth. As we know, no such wives or children were ultimately forthcoming. And so at Edward's accession, 30-year-old Mary was his lawful heir to the English throne and 13-year-old Elizabeth next in line. Pretty clear then, and presumably nothing will happen to complicate matters. So there we have it. Thanks for listening once again, and I apologise once again for the lengthy wait between this episode and the previous one. As I record this outro, you may hear the sounds of fireworks exploding into the Bristol night, and... 415 years on from the gunpowder plots it's quite apt to be recording a podcast which takes into account the reformation and something that would ultimately lead to huge catholic persecution so yeah those fireworks are a good soundtrack to this particular episode thanks once again you can find the transcript at the usual place on my Wattpad account thank you and talk to you soon